0: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Ah, okay. All right, it says it's recording now. So, I have Annie here with me. Um Annie, I haven't seen you since 2019, I think.
1: I think that sounds about right, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's been a uh, yeah, a crazy time. We were looking for, if you remember, we were looking forward to the um the Armenian Games, the the sort of pan-European games. Um in April last year and I think we'd have all met then were you uh, were you part of uh, any of the committees
1: uh you know what no I wasn't I did think about it but then kind of realized that you know it was very much kind of nicely handled as it was so
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was more on the uh, I can help on the day or when it actually happens you know just been running around and why not rather than on the organizing as such
0: mm-hmm. yeah do, do, do you do you remember Back then, um, when this sort of, uh, this unknown virus started to emerge, and and then it was like, um, this might have a, have an effect on the on the on the games guys um you know do you have like a plan b and and the response was always nah, this has got nothing to do with us this is just you know it's, it's nothing it will pass and so on and then it was really very gradual like when the realization set in that you know actually this isn't just some you know a little sort of flu for the season or seasonal flu this is something a lot more did you remember that when it started to sort of change uh, our, our sort of perception of it started to change
1: i do vividly but more than anything i remember having this conversation about the italian lockdown
0: okay
1: and because obviously they start i think they were the first in in europe to kind of go into lockdown and their lockdown was very very strict mm. uh just like spain i think like not allowed to leave their house for a walk or anything unless you're going to the shops um and we're like is this a bit much like are they taking that a little bit too far there was that whole kind of conversation of not mockery but you know almost like mm, not sure this is you know it's that important and then slowly but surely mm. then started to hit here, like oh okay hold on maybe maybe it isn't just the flu maybe it does need to to happen but at the time like we never I don't think we ever sorry there's something that would you know would still be going on now we're like okay you know we're just going to stay in our houses for like you know six weeks a couple of months and then you know we'll be fine and then obviously it hasn't
0: mm.
1: <laughs> it's really weird yeah
0: yeah it's, it's also almost like a classic case of yet yeah, this will never happen to us and so on and so forth you know because at you know the, the first we heard of it was people in China were dying um, and and even when it was in Italy the first people to die were of Chinese origin. Yeah. And also also I think there was one death in France and even that death was of Chinese origin. So then the conspiracy theories start to come in. OK, one yeah. minute, have they created some kind of like DNA connected virus which okay. only attacks Chinese people? You
1: know, I know it's. It's You know what, I was weirdly actually watching um, that trilogy of um, the um, the prequels of uh, Planet of the Apes, sure. <laughs> and it's actually quite weird because obviously there is a human-made virus going on there that kind of like spreads across um, the world, and that's how, you know, the whole like Planet of the Apes kind of side of things and ends up happening with, obviously not from an origin point of view of like human-made versus, you know, Come from animals, but it was quite weird to see, um, you know, the kind of the parallels, if you like, uh, on that point of view and how far it could potentially go if it was like truly kind of out of control. Obviously, we're talking a movie, but you know, it's one of those where it kind of gives you a bit of a this, <laughs> this could actually, you know, if it if not kind of controlled, it could go to a kind of very dangerous extreme. Hmm.
0: yeah yeah absolutely and uh, as you bring that up it reminds me of another uh, of a book that i read recently i completely unaware I, th- I thought i was actually going to be reading a thriller but it turned out to be um uh, like one of these um sort of disaster natural disaster style mm-hmm. movies uh, books it was it's called station 11 by uh, emily st john mandel um and it's about how a flu essentially uh, takes over the whole planet, and um, yeah, then there's hardly anybody left. So there are no more, there were no more nurses, there were no more um, engineers to fix things. There's yeah. no more internet, no more electricity, no more government, nothing. So basically, you know, at varying stages within sort of like a, a 12 to 15 month period, mm-hmm. society gradually just collapses um, because they just simply were not in a position to deal with. The pandemic, and I mean, the thing is, this story was written in in 2014, so it had nothing to do with you know what is happening now. But I imagine the author, um, she's probably looking at that with a a, you know a bit of fear in her. Oops.
1: But also that brings up a you know a different question, which I think is like really interesting, which is okay, we've got the society as we know it collapses. So that kind of opens up two avenues. After that, with like whoever is actually left, do you then try to rebuild what was already there, or do you actually go, hold on, we got this somehow? Maybe we did to, maybe we did have, you know, something to do with the way things kind of progress. So do we take this as a like, kind of pause and the opportunity to build a new type of society rather than rebuilding what we already had? And yeah. Obviously, we're not anywhere near that kind of level of extreme, but I think that there's been lots of conversations and, you know, um, talks, etc., about, you know, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic in terms of what have we learned during the pandemic in terms of, you know, um, more of a community sense, more of a, you know, certain attitudes, if you like, that have mm. uh, taken place during the pandemic where we're like, actually... These are positives that have come out of this situation. Maybe what we need to do is try and make sure that we keep those moving forward and actually reinforce these kind of uh, attitudes, rather than trying to go back to the way it was before. In a way, so obviously, I think I think there's something really interesting in that in terms of like reevaluating, um, you know, what we know uh, as you know a space of comfort versus kind of actually. Changing things and moving them forward—it into something that actually would make it better.
0: Do, do you see, for example, leadership playing a role in this? And I, I don't want to unnecessarily sort of introduce criticisms of of governments in any part of the world, but leadership, as in from us—you know—you know—we have uh, the potential here to play a part, you know, and. And we could show our leadership capabilities in saying, OK, we will follow the medical instructions. Um, you know, we will sort of make decisions for our communities, for our families, for ourselves mm. um, so that we can sit this out safely and then emerge from the other side. Do, do you think that sort of it speaks of um, the um, the characters um, of, 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 of our society?
1: You know, I think it does. And I think it's. It's one of those where whether depending on how much your government is doing and depending on how much you agree with what the policies are, et cetera, I think, you know, there is a role for kind of for society and, you know, us individually to kind of build networks or kind of uh, support in a way that potentially isn't coming like top down.
2: Mm. So,
1: you know, at the end of the day, I think that it's that sense of community I was talking about earlier. And I think, yes, there is definitely a role to kind of for us as individuals and as groups of people to kind of create these networks, 100%. And
0: and do you think also that we, we have, as a society, become somewhat dependent on, on, on governmental decision-making? As in, um, you know, we, we are in many, many ways in a position where we can actually react to these things, you know, without any kind of direction, and yet we fail to do so um you know perhaps there's also an argument to say that okay we we can of course blame governments but Mm. on the other hand we can also take responsibility ourselves
1: i think yeah and i think the taking responsibility point is key i think there is a degree of complacency and almost kind of like waiting to see what um government is doing i think you know it's kind of So you could see it a little bit with a lot of like U-turns if you like and like changes in decision that have been um, happening over the last few kind of weeks or months and it's almost like we're sitting here kind of waiting to see what the decision is going to be but you know we could and can kind of go actually I'm making the decision of thing actually I think this is a dangerous situation right now I'm not going to wait for the government to decide whether we're going on to lockdown or not um I'm you know going to take the step to kind of put myself into lockdown I don't know there is there was especially I think we saw a lot of this like during Christmas uh, when there was a whole conversation of like do we relax the rules slightly over Christmas and you know you could see the the reaction when um, tier four was declared here and then you know all of a sudden you had god knows how many kind of thousands of people just like leaving London and again, you kind of think that that was an immediate, almost like reaction to a government decision. But you know, I think it's something that people could have easily seen coming, and kind of acted accordingly rather than you know just panicking. You know, I don't know. I think it was mm. it's, there is a, there is there is this degree of complacency of like waiting to see what the what the big boys are doing and and are saying as opposed to. Us actually taking the responsibility and making these decisions. Mm
0: it's also quite interesting because I, I i remember when this as you i mean you rightly brought up the uh, the example of of italy and i remember when this sort of hit italy um you know in in, in the north sort of near milan in this i think especially in this is a Bergamo area yeah and and then there were lots of um you know these stories of people fleeing and you know moving out of Bergamo going to you know, wherever they had come from originally mm. and and the government said look no you can't do this you're you're taking the virus with you um do, do you think that's also uh, you know potentially what has happened um in the uk as well that people have just sort of you know fled london for example um and taken it with them
1: uh, absolutely and you know the whole the idea of like people have fled london is is really really visible like from so many people i know who have made the either kind of gone back to their parents or made the conscious decision to leave London you can, it's something you can see like even in the housing market like, I was house hunting um like a few months ago and the amount of property that's available for rent in London is insane like in, in an area where normally there isn't that much there is you can literally just pick and choose what you want it's it's not something you see and yeah like even from um from from the workplace so many are, like, one's in Scotland, the other one uh, went back to South Africans working from there. Uh, you know, so mm. many, they, obviously there's still some in London, but, like, a lot of people have made the decision to, to just go away during all of this.
0: Mm. And, and have uh, rental prices been uh, negatively affected by this, or was it supply and demand and so on? Yeah.
1: Um, I think some have gone down, but there's been, it's, there's like a strange situation. Like for example, in my, in my own house, I'm in a house share and one of the, uh, one of the housemates moved out in December, which is a pretty bad time to move anyway, but obviously during the pandemic, it's even harder and Mm. it's it's impossible to find someone. Hmm. So, uh, you know, we had, I think we had like two responses to the ad in a month when normally you get like 10 a day. So you can definitely tell. But obviously, our concern was like, well, we can't afford to pay this other person's rent if, you know, we can't find anyone. So I think the teller as to what the situation is, was that the um, the estate agent has actually agreed to cover that rent, if you like, so reduce our rent so that we only pay for, you know, us who are in the house. Because they know that if we if we decide to move out, they will then have to you know put a four-bedroom house in the market and mm. there's no chance they're going to be able to fill that in so they've decided to kind of keep three people and take the hit of that one one-fourth if you like of the rent mm. and keep us going so this in normal situations would never happen the first thing they would say well it's not a problem if you can't find someone so you have to you know pay for the full thing so that in itself is is a big teller. I think lots mm-hmm. of landlords are reducing rents, and knowing that obviously a lot of people have uh, lost their jobs or you know struggling, etc. So I think there is you can definitely tell in a housing kind of um, market that there is, especially in the rent on the rental side of things, mm-hmm. that there is like a bit of a you know shift in that sense, and a bit of right we could, we need to kind of write this out because. Otherwise, like, you know, it's literally not going to be many people left in London who can afford venting.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that was almost the case before the pandemic hit. But I, obviously, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, since people have so many people have lost their jobs and so on. It's obviously it's, it's a big it's a big issue. Um, so. All right. Um, OK. I I was first introduced to Ania, I think it's about five, maybe six years ago now as Ani Barcelona, yeah, and <laughs> um, yeah, because obviously, um, yeah, our, our sort of mutual friends are, you know, very creative in coming up with names, um, right. and because you're you're Ani, and I presume you're from Barcelona, so therefore put the two together, and therefore we have a, a very original name for you. Um, but yeah, could you tell me a bit about your background?
1: Yeah, sure. Oh my God, I can't believe the Ani Barcelona is always coming up. Sorry. Um, <laughs> right, fine. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, so I was born in Barcelona, as the name suggests, Mm. Uh, but yeah, my parents moved there uh, from uh, Istanbul via Germany in about, I think it was 1967, Um, so obviously they're from, they're Armenian, Mm. Um, and yeah, so both me and my brother moved there, and it was a very strange choice i would say uh to move to barcelona i think obviously like many people uh, they moved to germany at the time and i think my dad was offered the opportunity at the time to then either move to canada or barcelona and i think part part of their decision was commu- being somewhere where there is an Armenian community versus not but also it was a proximity to family obviously canada is a lot further away from uh, istanbul where kind of my grandparents were still based and you know from a climate point of view being near the sea and all that kind of side things Barcelona was like really attractive to them um mm. so that's what they did um and so I grew up there went um, to a French school there the
0: French school in Barcelona
1: yeah so I did almost my cool. thing from like preschool through to the equivalent of A levels in French so basically like the French system Mm. But in uh, based in Barcelona, I think there was partly well, I think both my parents did their kind of secondary school in French. Uh, but also it's it's a very good school, um, and you know they believed in the system, and for me, like my dad always had like a very strong opinion about um, the importance of languages and kind of learning as you know almost like as many as possible, as young as possible, because you know it's a huge door opener, mm. uh, which I do kind of agree with like he started teaching me English when I was seven uh, we used to do like lessons uh, at home which obviously I used to hate <laughs> as a kid I was like I want to be playing um, hmm. but you know that means I started um, English about four years before I did at school so you know I always was um, you know a little more advanced level so that was always like you know really helpful and it has proved really helpful in the future um so yeah i did I went to French school there then went to I did business school in Barcelona, which was a bit of a ran, random choice so I was one of those kids who liked anything from philosophy to chemistry and enjoyed all of it I uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time um so I kind of went for the more practical choice if you like, and said so, you know that having that understanding of business in a way would probably you know be a practical thing that will come in handy uh for the dandelion, but still not really knowing what what I wanted to do. Um allowed me that allowed me to do my exchange in Sydney. So I spent like six months in Sydney um as part of my masters there, which was really great and kind of in fairness was an indicative of me having itchy feet and hmm. to kind of um go away from Barcelona and almost like, you know, explore almost like have my own kind of little world and kind of build that on you know um just for myself went back to Barcelona and um started working um more in the more corporate world side things but soon enough realized that that wasn't really for me Um, and a friend of mine kind of pointed me in the direction of a a design brand design agency saying maybe that's something where you know they're looking for someone you've got the kind of marketing kind of knowledge and all that kind of side things but you've got the creativity as well could be interesting and that's yeah I was kind of back in what 2003 so and that's yeah I've been working in that kind of brand design packaging some events kind of side things ever since really Uh, and then yeah I think itchy feet kind of didn't stop from there, and eventually I decided to move to London. Uh, actually, 15 years to the day today. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. It's, when you say 15, I was like, wow, that's, you know, it's, it's it's a long time. It is a long time. It's a very long
0: time. Okay, so um, so you've also shown yourself to be a very independent woman so you know as you said before you 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 wanted you you made your own choices as it were with regards to so your education you know you, you applied a practical um approach to you know the subject that you would study but also deciding to go to you know a country like australia so it's very far away um and you know you i guess you wanted a challenge right you wanted to sort of cut cut loose and go somewhere completely different
1: yeah, I mean, first, it was a combination of things. Like, I remember the time we had, oh, you can go to these American kind of universities or da da da. And I was like, well, I think it's quite easy to end up going to America on a trip kind of thing. Whereas, like, for me, Australia was like, actually, it's not on your way, if you know what I mean. It's literally on the other side of the world. I also had, like, um, someone I know who was living there at the time. Um, and I've always had like my dad when I was a kid had gone there for work and you know I always had this idea of like I actually really want to spend time there when am I going to have the the opportunity to spend like five six months down there in a way and also I mean at the time it was like <laughs> as far away from my parents as it could be so uh, no disrespect to them but you know as a twenty twenty one year old I was kind of you know really wanting to have my space my independence and you know just kind of figure things out on my own so yeah it was it was one of the best experiences I've ever had Um, and you know just being there with lots of exchange students from all over the world you know seeing a completely different country we did like a one month road trip uh, around the country from you know desert to jungle to cities It, it was amazing and you know it's I think I learned so much from it um, you know, just from living and, you know, having that five, six months period of trying to see, find out who I am, but also kind of getting all this new stimulus and, you know, satisfying that curiosity that was mm-hmm. bursting out, really.
0: Okay. And also how you are, what kind of a person you are, but also how you fit into a group of, of others, as it were. Um, I guess that's also quite uh, educational for, for somebody.
1: Mm. No, absolutely. Especially because um, what what I was studying was a weird program, which was like a, a, a BA and and an MBA, which normally you only do once you've already kind of worked. Um, so the people in my class were, were people who were six, seven, eight years older than me. Um, so people who had been in the professional world and worked and done all of that and then gone back to do a master's. Um, so, again, it was, you know, I was quite different from that group literally kind of being still in uni um, but you know no one really cared uh, at that point and you know you just like one one more person kind of thing coming from whatever your background is and I don't know it was I learned a lot from them because obviously they've had different complete different experiences to mine um, and yeah I think yeah it was both really eye-opening in terms of just getting in, in contrast to Barcelona, where, where, at least at the time, it was somewhere that was very kind of, what's the word, same, same In, in Okay. The, you know, uh, Barcelona is very Catalan and or Spanish, if you like. There's, from a diversity point of view, uh, it's a lot, it's changed a lot now, but back in the, back in the day, you know, it was very kind of local in a way. So it's not somewhere where you get, you know, lots of different people from lots of different places whereas you know Sydney in that sense and especially in an exchange program then you 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 do get all of that and again like you do in London that's you know partly one of the reasons why I moved here was you know first day of like stepping here it's like whoa you know you such like level of diversity just walking around in the street that you don't you know you don't see in Barcelona.
0: Hmm. And just just on uh, on a side note, um, it, when you were in Australia, did you see many Germans?
1: <laughs> um, no. Why?
0: Because I tell you, almost every second <laughs> or third German I meet, they're like. Uh, yeah, I went to Australia, um, and um, and then they and then they start talking to me in English, and you know, bit by bit, the Australian accent creeps in. And I was in a I was in an Irish pub once in Berlin, and um, and this guy eventually he became he got that Australian bit took over him so much, he called out to the waitress, "Hey Shayla," and and, and I was like, "Oh my God!" I was so embarrassed, and the, and this poor woman came over she said oh my mum's name is Sheila and um, <laughs> and it, it just went downhill from that point on but uh, okay this didn't happen and you didn't see too many uh, Australian accented Germans
1: um, I don't think I've met any Germans when I was there if I'm completely honest
0: okay um, right.
1: so, no that's a good story though
0: yeah was, yeah yeah <laughs> it's crazy but there you go. okay all right cool so your all right your first uh, impressions then of london were yeah, extremely positive i guess the fact that you've stayed in london for 15 years would suggest that the positives have by far outweighed the negatives
1: um well yeah so far so so far yes and um you know i think as you were saying i think and as an example of like what I meant by the diversity side of things, I was, when I first came to London, which was before I moved here, so back, I think it was 1999, I think it was. So me and a friend of mine who's, she's half Scottish, half Armenian, but she doesn't speak Armenian. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were on a night bus coming back from God knows where, like two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, and we're chatting and I did say something to her in Armenian, I can't remember why, that this guy who was sat in front of us, um, turns around, says, are you to Armenian? Yes. Um, well, he's like, I'm Iraqi, but my sister is married to an Armenian. And then he proceeds to start singing Armenian songs to us. Oh, God. And I'm like, <laughs> my brain is exploding at that point. I'm like, what just happened? So it's things like this that all... Again, in the same week, we go to this pub, there's four guys standing outside having a chat. We start talking to them. Turns out um, they're mates, right? So one of them is Turkish. The other one is um, Turkish Cypriot. Uh, one's Greek and the other one's Greek Cypriot. So just, just for a minute, imagine this, especially with everything that's been happening recently mm. at, a, at, a, at a macro kind of you know geographic political level we've got these four guys and us who join in and spend an evening just chatting random whatever evening having a drink and for me again that blew my mind in terms of you know that animosity that you see at you know obviously culturally and politically between us as nations um but there as six individuals six people who are just having A nice evening and having a conversation it's that contrast in a way again I don't know is something that I'm really really interested in and kind of how you can um go through these boundaries that you know and forget all of the noise in a way and just like focus on the people you have in front of you and those are two experiences two of my very first London experiences that kind of really kind of attracted me in terms of, and um, made me want to come here and kind of be part of that in a way, I guess. Mm.
0: I mean, London obviously provides the opportunity, doesn't it? Because of its sheer size, uh, the fact that it's 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 got such a sort of you know, dynamic um, labour market. Um, you know, there's always something for people to do if mm. indeed they choose to do so. Um, but it, a lot of it actually comes down to individual decision making, doesn't it? As in, it, when you go somewhere, it's almost as though you have an opportunity to completely redefine yourself. Mm. And will you become a positive um, uh, sort of integrated member of the community do you want to actively pursue friendships with diverse groups um or are you going to be a bit more inward looking um and and sort of just go about your your life work and and so on so you know a bit like what we were saying before um you know a lot of it is up to the individual isn't it
1: yeah no i agree 100 percent. and i think on that front it's just made me think of something like when when i first moved here You know, I could have very easily kind of gone to and, you know, find where the Spanish people are and hang out with the Spanish people, Um, which weirdly I never did. I don't think I have a single Spanish friend in in London. My initial I mean, I was lucky enough to find a job like really quickly, like within a month of being here and like very quickly was integrated in a very English um, environment like for years. 99% 99% of my friends would be, you know, English and I got to, in a way, it was like a fast track lesson in, <laughs> into Britain and like cultural elements and all that kind of side things. I've, you know, many of my friends um, kind of say, oh, you're almost like more English than us hmm. sometimes. And um, it's only really like, you know, much later that I then started kind of hanging out with Armenians as well like I think I think I did I did reach out to I did have um a good like Armenian friend here but he was the only one I, I would hang out with I did go to a few kind of parties um but I, I just I did it just didn't click for me you know it was like there's something I'm like I'm not I'm not feeling this and again having not grown up in in a community in Armenian community there were a few things that I found a bit strange or I don't know it didn't work for me so it was like I left that and didn't really get involved until maybe what five years ago
0: Hmm. i think which is more or less around the time that um yeah we met um Hmm. It it is interesting that, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, knowing uh, the group, at least a part of the group that you you interact with and you are friends with, you know, I I would say, even though they are Armenian um, in ethnic origin, but they are very, very European in the way that they, you know, they live their lives as as British, uh, but also sort of Europeans. Um, And and I think that maybe um, makes them a bit more... Uh, welcoming to, yeah. to, to newcomers don't you think?
1: I think so and I mean don't get me wrong I have spent time with Armenians though so I did used to go to um, Istanbul a lot um, as a teenager like there's this you may know about it um, this place called Kanalada
0: which is this I, I don't of, know I'm sorry
1: um, so there is this kind of group of islands in Istanbul like between the two parts of Istanbul called the uh, the Prince Islands Okay. Um, where a lot of uh, basically people spend their summers there. And uh, one of them, uh, which is this island called Kanalada, is the one that traditionally um, local Armenians spend their, basically, local Armenians spend their summers there. So that's where my parents met, for example. And uh, my dad had um, kept the kind of family flats. Um, and then when I was, I think, when I was about 14, I, we then started going there for summer and spending like maybe three weeks a month there. So, again, that was amazing as an experience because I then got to see lots of Armenians like me. So being like second generation elsewhere, but that'd be like Armenians from L.A., from Germany, from Canada, from actually not from the UK. Maybe not not so much because there's not that many um, Istanbul Armenians here. But basically, imagine like lots of people like me with a similar background, but having grown up in anywhere in the world congregating in a tiny little island for summer so you know but I think that was my kind of understanding of um Armenian kind of community in a way but I got that like three weeks a year kind Mm. of so I guess in a way that's why when I moved here I then kind of I was looking for it in a way but yeah it's I think I'm more drawn to those that have a bit more of a like a, a positive kind of attitude towards other cultures, or you know, that integrated element um, than than certain potentially more closed off um, and potentially more opinionated, in my view, kind of uh, mm-hmm. community. But I think that's partly because of my own background. You know, saying like, growing up as an Armenian in Barcelona and then having moved here and then having spent time you know in a French environment for like you know 15 years at school and then Australia I do tend to kind of I like that diversity I like that kind of the fact that you can take from all these different cultures the things that are that work for you in a way and make them become like a part of you Mm. and you know and you know there's loads of things that I do that I say that can be very Spanish, but then there'll be certain things that'll be like, "Oh, that's very English," or you know it's just almost like creating a kind of identity in a way that kind of leans on all of these different inputs. I think there's something you know that's how you become richer in in a way mm. you know I do like that kind of attitude, that mentality of like people being you know open to that.
0: And, and, and talking of identity, as in you know, a couple of times when we've discussed football, you, you know, you're you're very you you're, you're very much a Barcelona fan, aren't you? Yeah, okay. absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Um, it's not going too well for you this season, though, is it?
1: Well, it's a transition season. I keep saying this, you know. You <laughs> <laughs> transition. That's okay. what you said. I mean, we did have the most terrible. Um, Last last year was kind of almost embarrassing. You, you know what game I'm referring to? I'm not mm. going. Uh, I,
0: I I may I may yeah remember. Um, but the last few seasons there have been a number of embarrassing <laughs> games. But anyway, yes, please
1: please. Yeah. <laughs> now nah, there is um that you know I'm almost like kind of I I do challenge my dad on that one quite a lot. It just makes me laugh. Uh, mm. but yeah, no, there is it's it's a transition period we've got like a few older players we are we've not been like particularly good with our coach selection recently mm-hmm. um you know it's team rebuild time let's face it so i'm not expecting you know major wins this year so as long as we don't have major losses like we did last year i'll be mm-hmm. <laughs> i'll consider myself lucky
0: Mm, Okay. But to tie in sort of two elements then, because you you also said you work in sort of branding and marketing and so on. Um, uh, I would suggest that in recent years, Barcelona's PR has not been quite up to scratch. What, What do you think about that? In what way? Uh, well, for example, the debacle with Messi over the summer—it was sort of long, drawn out. Um, also, the—you know—the presidents, the tag team of presidents—you know, one comes in and the other one goes out, and then the one that went out starts—you know—bad mouthing, and it comes back in a couple of years later. Um, it, it just sort of goes around in roundabouts. And um, I do remember a few years ago, you know, in in the UK, we. Were, we're talking so positively about the system because Barcelona is owned by the fans. Is that not mm-hmm. essentially the case? Yeah. Um, and yet, still, the management is, yeah, not ideal.
1: Mm. No, you're right, and I think there's been part of the reason as well. Is there, um, from what I understand, and I'm probably not close enough to it, um, there's a fair bit of animosity between some players and the you know the team management mm-hmm. as such and that's something that's definitely affected um you know from, from a PR point of view and you know all this kind of squirmish kind of actually coming out um to light and kind of being on the press whereas like potentially in previous years when you know everything was working nicely and you know, it was like one happy family if you like, then obviously it was it did I think the 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 PR itself had a positive impact because actually things were fine and dandy if you like within within team and management, whereas it's something that in the last maybe like two, three years has definitely not happened. Like, you know, Chavi, for example, has been like quite open about how he feels about the current uh management, um messy kind of doesn't really talk about it because you know he he knows it's not his it's not his role, but yeah I don't know I think there's there's elections due to happen um, in the next month or so um so there is a bit of a hope that things will change and kind of you know start going back to you know that really kind of strong team kind of um, element that Barcelona is known for.
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, but isn't it a bit funny in some ways that this uh, the sort of internal political issue uh, has arisen as the team's abilities on the pitch have dwindled? So I'm talking, you know, players like Iniesta, Javi leaving, um, and obviously Messi is, you know, he's getting older, he can't carry the team as much as he could have done perhaps in the past. You know, I mean... I would say Javi and Iniesta, along with Paul Scholes, being a Manchester United fan, uh, you know, three of the best midfielders who mm. have graced football in the last 20, 30 years. As in, but to lose two,
1: yeah, it's and and again, like you know, it's uh, losing them was both from um, not just from a um, quality of play side of things, <clears throat> but also from a. Like they they were like so ingrained in the kind of the Barcelona fabric in a way it's like from a from the fans as well they are you know they are beyond adored mm. as um, as players kind of them leaving as well and obviously it has an impact on that also on the play and you can tell that you can, it's you can definitely tell that you know the the way the team is working now is kind of you know miles from where it was before and you know it's when you start getting cracks in the results that you know obviously other issues that potentially before weren't talked about so much or weren't as relevant they start coming out as well I think you know when things go well who cares things are going well do you know Mm. what I mean like it's like you know we're winning everything etc everyone's happy there's certain like political issues or whatever that you know you don't pay so much attention to But when things start not going so well, then everything all of a sudden just like starts, you know, bursting out and uh, making their way out to the public. So I think, you know, I don't think that happens just in football. I think it happens in, you know, everything. The second things start kind of going a bit and not so well, then Mm. problems kind of rise to the surface, really.
0: Yeah, I guess in football because it's so high high profile then uh, sometimes the problems are far more exaggerated uh, perhaps is the best way to put it.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: okay. But I mean what, one of the issues I wanted to really talk about as well and this is why I introduced the, the Barcelona factor is that you 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 obviously are from Barcelona as in you are essentially catalonian and um <laughs> You're very proud, I think, of your roots um, and your attachment to to the area. Uh, How do you see some of the political issues uh, regarding um, potential autonomy, shall we say? Um, How do you view that? And now from a distance as well.
1: Um, Actually, the from a distance point is key, I think. Um, Well, Yes, you're right. I've always felt like really proud of the Catalonian side of things. And I will always say I'm Catalonian rather than being Spanish. Um, But I think for me, that's more from a cultural point of view. And I think, you know, there are some clear differences. There's a lot in common, but there's also a lot of like uh, differences between like, you know, Catalans and um, Spaniards. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... A lot of the current issues have come from very poorly managed um, political situations back in maybe like a decade ago, when um, I think the Catalan government was asking for a bit more autonomy, a bit more um, independence in terms of like managing the taxes or, you know, in terms of education. yeah, as you know, like Spain is like, it, it's it's not like a centralised country. It does have all kind of different autonomies and different autonomies have different degrees of autonomy. Like the Basque country, for example, they have a very different set of laws where they, ha- they are a lot more um, independent from like a central government that maybe other autonomies are. And Catalan sits like somewhere in the middle. And um, there was this ask firm... Uh, There's this bill that was being written um, to kind of establish a bit more of that kind of independence. And all of that was kind of in the process of being signed off and eventually it didn't. And I think that's one of them. That was a trigger. Mm -hmm. Like, There's always been a sense of, you know, um, an independent kind of movement in Catalonia, but it was always like relatively minimal. Like I never I honestly never thought I would see what's happened in the last ten years. Like it was always maybe I don't know, say like twenty percent of people who are like, Yeah, you know. But see, getting to the point where there's like all the kind of demonstrations on the street, there's all the uh all the kind of the elections and all that kind of side of things for independence. I honestly never saw I would see that. It's not something you could have sensed uh before that kind of turning point. If you like. And then from then on, I think, you know, the political, like local political parties took that even parties that weren't traditionally uh, for independence to on that mantle. I think it was it's it was partly a political game in terms of right. There is huge frustration coming from the people um, about this kind of bill not passing. Let's capitalize on that. And there's been a lot of that over the kind of the last few years I think um, Madrid have not been smart about it I don't nice. think like for me I've always compared um, the Scottish situation to the Catalan situation and how that was handled like for example how the referendum was handled uh, The refer- the Catalan referendum was not allowed it was deemed illegal mm-hmm. so and again for me it's like basic psychology you know you tell someone you can't do it <laughs> Well, we're going to go for it. Whereas I think for what I'm not a David Cameron fan, but, you know, it's I think there's one thing he was really smart about was, okay, you want to have a referendum? Have it. And then, you know, you'll deal with the results after that. And whereas that wasn't allowed in Spain. And that's where all of the kind of current issues come from it was that kind of Madrid versus Barcelona media taking it to like, if you see like Madrid papers versus um, Catalan papers, it becomes like a huge media battle. There isn't like um, a really objective kind of take on any of it. It's all kind of, everything is fueling like that animosity.
0: Yeah. There's a definite lack in objectivity. I think everywhere, um, uh, you know, Ardman has often commented, I'm sure you've probably talked about it with him as well, that in, in the USA, for example, you, you know, objective media reporting just doesn't exist. You're in one camp or the other um, and you essentially get um, you know, very polarized views. And so I, I can only imagine that in, in, in Spain it's it's the same.
1: Yeah. And yeah, and it's. And that's why I think like being not actually being there and seeing this from you know from the uk i've i've taken a more a much more objective view of it like i'm you know i'm someone who's i've always preached like for the the difference between like spanish and catalan the fact that, that there is something there and yes there are there are grounds for independence but you know um, i think that it's you need if you do it you need to be smart about it you know for things like for example if Especially with Brexit in the back of my mind if if leaving Spain implies not being part of the eu I'm like i 'm not entirely sure that's the smartest way about you know to go about it, but whereas I think the conversation that's happening within the country itself is very again like the gray area doesn't exist like mm. the, all the kind of the media portrayal and all of the conversations all of the rallies that happen it's all very black and white. And I find that I find that really frustrating. And I see like my parents, for example, they're like super involved in that. Like my mum like listens to the radio <laughs> constantly and she does she makes a point of like listening to both sides, which I find quite interesting. Hmm. And, um, you know, she'll listen to like very kind of um the more kind of Spanish central or Spanish centric, if you like, uh point of views and she'll listen to the very Catalan point of views and she herself like Probably because of being Armenian, both of them are very kind of pro Catalan and pro independence, actually. But um, yeah, at least that kind of they make the point of like get it, trying to get both of those opinions. But I don't think that's someone that that's something that people do tend to do there. Mm. It's very single-minded and kind of you know you're either one of us or you're one of them. There's a lot of that happening in Barcelona
0: okay i mean yeah these sort of binary situations have never really appealed well maybe they appealed to me when i was younger but i'd like to think i've grown up a bit and matured a bit and come to the conclusion that you know the world is not binary Um, in any way and uh, there are many many degrees in between and depending on the topic uh, you know there are more or less degrees Um, but it's cool to see that your parents don't live in an echo chamber and they only sort of pursue uh, news from from the one side Uh, I guess that uh, also alludes to the open-mindedness that you have so I mean it's not just where you grew up but also you know who you grew up with
1: Mm. no absolutely definitely I mean yeah
0: and I mean, in, in in Barcelona, how how is the um, um, the discussion of sort of gender equality? Um, as you know, I discussed this with uh, with Tatiana as well, um, and you know perhaps you have a different cultural insight with regards to this. Um, how was it in, in in how was it in Barcelona growing up? Was it was it a case of the boys play football, the girls do knitting? Was, <laughs> you know, was it like? No, because recently on, on German television they, there's a, some brilliant TV programs for children, and they did a they had a little sort of survey of the kids, and uh, they asked the boys, you know, are you better at maths than the girls? And the boys were like, yeah, we're great, blah blah blah. And then they asked the girls, and the girls were really quiet. They didn't say anything. They said, yeah, I think we're as good. Um, and, then, and then the teacher got out, like, some sets of results and said, well, girls, actually, you're a bit better than good. Yeah, As in, um, you know, it, it's still – it's interesting that some of these issues still remain in schools. And so my question yeah. is, you know, growing up in Barcelona, did you have that kind of uh, pressure as well?
1: Uh, to be honest, like, I'm just starting to think – I don't think there was – so much of a we're better at this than you are or all of that on the contrary I actually think that girls were probably getting like better grades than boys were uh but if anything like I would say that boys would potentially you know mock those that you know would have would be better at this or better at that but um no I don't I don't think there was that sense of like you know we are boys so we are better at this I don't think there was that kind of division. Yes, in terms of like playing football, you know, games and sports and all that kind of side of things. I mean, yeah, like football and all of kind of all those kind of things were still very much seen as more of a boys' thing than a girls' thing, I guess. But right. I don't know. Like, I never felt, or I don't. At least I don't remember having that kind of, oh, you are a girl, you shouldn't be doing this, kind of thing. I don't. I don't remember having that kind of feeling or that ever being like a concern or an issue.
0: And, and, sorry. No, go on. No, I was just going to ask, because, uh, you know, I'm sort of thinking back to the point when you know, these political um, issues occurred in, in Barcelona um, a few years ago and, you know, arrest warrants were issued around Europe for, you know, these uh, Catalonian representatives, but none of them were, were women. A lot of the political leaders um, are men. And so, do women get involved in, you know, sort of Catalonian politics?
1: Um, More now. You're right. Like, from a, I'm not saying that there isn't sexism in in Catalonia or in Spain, because if nothing else, like, it's possibly one of the country's biggest downfalls. And the way I see it is one of the countries where, sexism is actually rife and actually quite strong uh and dangerous to the degree but i at least i think i was lucky enough to not really kind of see it in my environment or in my surroundings but from a, i think you're right like from a leadership point of view um it has been traditionally very much uh male-led Uh, But there is a conscious effort or there has been, I think, in the last few years of having more um, female representatives. I think like from a central government point of view as well. Um, I think it was a couple of a couple of um, prime ministers ago. um, He started making the point of having like female uh, ministers in the cabinet and uh, and actually not a majority of them, but like quite a strong number, which was, you know, the first time that that was ever happening. Um, I think in Catalan politics, there's still, still very much male dominated. There are some female figures, but it's still very much on the, um, on the male side for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, allowing cooler heads to prevail, um, I think, is perhaps uh, a part of the the issue when it comes to these kinds of conflicts. Uh, I, I think about Germany and the the, the massive. Uh, uh, the massively positive effect that uh, Angela Merkel has had yeah. on on many many different crises and um, you know this this September she's uh, stepping down after what will be 16 years as the mm-hmm. chancellor and she's going to be replaced and none of the main or front-running candidates are, are a woman and I think she tried to bring to have a, a woman take her place um, but unfortunately proved unsuccessful in in that uh, field and it seems that um, you know the next chancellor is going to be a man so um, yeah I, I think I think Germany and also Europe would love uh, Mrs Merkel to have continued for another for Or eight years but uh, unfortunately she doesn't want to do so so that's fair enough.
1: Um, I mean after 16 years I'm guessing she's kind of you know thinking time to think about myself now.
0: (laughs) Yeah absolutely and I mean always she stayed on because you know the country was in a crisis so in 2015 there was the the refugee crisis and so she said okay I'll stay on and see the country through it. Um, Obviously now There are two crises, as it were, one for Europe, which is Brexit. And then Germany, obviously, is dealing with the the pandemic. Mm. Um, I think her kind of leadership would have helped guide both Europe and Germany through these two crises.
1: I agree. And I think for me, I mean, I think she's a really inspirational kind of person and role model for for women in that sense, because I think she's, and again, I'm not, I don't know her politics too cl- like that closely, but as a figurehead, and, you know, that kind of cool, calm, collected, very kind of, very much positioned as an equal, if you like, where she just doesn't take any kind of BS from, you know what I mean, from mm. the kind of the sphere that she moves in is something that I respect very much and I think that potentially if I comparing her to like Theresa May for example it's it's just you just can't put the the two in at the same level mm. do you know what I mean Like I think
2: yeah.
1: there is a strength there is a calmness there is a, a, a rationality in a way that comes from when you know like she radiates that in a way she's very kind of you know, you, she inspires respect
0: immediately,
1: mm. and that's something that I very much admire from her.
0: But it's a quiet strength, though, isn't it, that Mrs. Yeah. Merkel has? In people try to also uh, draw parallels between uh, Mrs. Merkel and Mrs. Thatcher, but you know, Mrs. Thatcher was um, far more um, antagonistic, I, I seem to recall. You know, she was well up for the fight, you know, whereas Mrs. Merkel was more like, well, actually, let's not fight take a moment think about it it's you know? that
1: it's that di- diplomacy right
0: yeah
1: I, in a way it's not about <clears throat> I think she's made her mark by almost like observing and then you know just observe assess and then take the right step rather than kind of being overtly confrontational or antagonistic as you said yes mm
0: yeah and I mean okay, she's obviously got a very you know extensive academic background. she's yeah. extremely intelligent and perhaps these analytical skills were helpful, especially in the scientific crisis that we've right. had um, you know. um, but it's also interesting that jacinda Arden in in New Zealand was also uh, considered to be one of the most successful leaders in dealing with the pandemic. so you know maybe there's something in that.
1: I think. I keep going back to that idea of community. I'm sorry, but like, it's, I think it's more of a, the, the, the mindset is slightly different in that mm-hmm. sense. Like how the, the approach, I think there's been, uh, I think there's been a lot of like politically led uh, decisions that have been made here, potentially where, you know, certain decisions around the pandemic have been made more as in like how is this going to affect my position uh in parliament or in with my kind of peers in that kind of side of things as instead of necessarily thinking about the 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 people in the country in a way whereas i think uh in new zealand it's you know that's the other way around i think she's been incredibly smart and that's how to how she's gone about it she's like you know again it is a smaller country as well it's probably like easier to manage and to kind of take on the kind of the steps that she that she did but you know closing off the island and saying you know it's going to have for a couple of months but we'll be much better for it in the long run it's definitely kind of proved right whereas you know the fact that we've only kind of asking people to take a negative to have a negative test when before they land in the UK, that only is happening now as we speak, again, blows my mind slightly.
0: (laughs) Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay, Um, all right, moving away from the uh, pandemic, which, you know, I think understandably it's, you know, I think every serious conversation at the moment involves some kind of reference to it, um but talk about your work so that may actually be in some ways affected again by the pandemic um but i, I seem to remember you, you you sort of um you work in a project uh, for a certain period of time and then when you've guided that project to a successful conclusion you then move to another project is, is that still how your um employment works
1: um yes and no so yeah i'm i'm a freelancer so i've been uh, freelancing for the last four four years i think mm-hmm. um So, yes, it's not necessary. It's more kind of in terms of like filling gaps, if you like. So, um, yes, I will be kind of brought in to drive a kind of a project or a series of projects for a period of time. Um, Sometimes it's whether, you know, they don't have the permanent resource, if you like, to run that project. Sometimes it's from a skill set or experience point of view that like actually we need someone who knows a lot about this side of things and I have the right kind of background of skill set to do it so yeah it's um it's more of a kind of dip in and out kind of um approach at the moment yeah
0: so what is that specific kind of skill set that uh, you know people sort of reach out to you for then uh
1: it can be well part of the kind of years of experience like I've been I've been in, in doing this for about 16 17 years now so uh, sometimes it's more the fact that they don't have the level of seniority uh, to to cover um, a certain project. Sometimes it's more from an industry knowledge. So I've, for example, done a lot of work uh, with the drinks, uh, alcoholic drinks industry. So you know, doing design work for, say, whiskey brands or beer brands, etc. And you know, there's something I'm very familiar with. So you know, they need someone who has that level of understanding. Or, for example, I've I've done a lot of, instead of focusing on one area, so brand design and packaging, I've actually done, I made a point earlier in my career to kind of open that up and then do some work on what we call like experiential or events or, you know, basically almost have more of a 360 uh, degree view as to how you kind of build a brand and you communicate it and sell it to your kind of target audience. Uh, Rather than being very kind of focused onto one area. So some projects actually do need that kind of more bird's eye view, if you like, or understanding of the wider kind of touch points, if you like, rather than going super deep on one area. Okay, and is is that also, that's a very interesting topic because,
0: I mean, recently, because lots of businesses have been obviously closed to the public, they've tried to uh, introduce these sort of all-encompassing, engaging experiences Mm -hmm. uh, with um, virtual events or or virtual platforms. Is this something that you've also managed to integrate in some ways?
1: Uh, Not so much uh, on my side in terms of because I've I've not really been working recently on that kind of experience side of definitely. things, um, but it is most definitely something that now in the types of projects that I've now started to work on, um, it is on the back of our minds always in terms of you need to you know it's not just about live experiences it's not ju- you know it's if you it's a it's adapting your brand strategy to what's happening right so right. If, if people are not going to uh, venues. Um, anymore and they're not you know they're not kind of being put in front of your brand there what do you do as a brand to actually bring take the brand to these people's homes so from a from a strategic point of view it's definitely an element that has been added into you know consideration it's not you know how do you bring this home rather than being out is become like an intrinsic part of the of that strategic process.
0: Mm, okay so it has sort of changed a bit the the project has changed in response to the realities in which you exist
1: yeah but not even just at project level but even at like very high up kind of brand strategy point of view it's you know acknowledging the fact that people are barely leaving their homes right now so how do you make how do you now reach these people it's you know it's become because otherwise it has impact on their bottom line at the end of the day so it's how do you kind of reverse the situation and make sure that you you know, you build that into how you kind of approach your brand.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting how, how you know, d- different organizations with, with extremely different products, um, you know, how can you convey a, a flavor, a taste, a tradition um, when there is no uh, sort of physical contact or presence um, around it? Obviously, this is where the creativity comes in. So it's really interesting uh, to see how that happens.
1: But you can tell like things, for example, um, a lot of like, again, drinks brands have been doing things like um, you know that people are not going to be going to buy and drinking a cocktail, but they've, especially some of the smaller brands have been really smart about it and said, well, we can, we're going to start creating cocktail making kits and you know um, things that you can or you can order online. They're being delivered to your home in you know in a box that fits your letterbox. So you know if you happen to be out, well, it doesn't matter, it's there. And you know just getting and then creating more of an experience something they can do at home and maybe will become supported by some online content or, you know, someone on Instagram telling you how to make that cocktail or giving you, you know, a couple of recipes or advice. So it's become, you know, there's, is that kind of partly educational because you're learning something, you're learning how to make that cocktail and, you know, it's an, and it's almost like trying to recreate what you were doing outside uh, and how, you know, recreating recreating that in your own home so there's been a lot of like stuff like that happening which i think is quite interesting
0: do you also have like branding partnerships where for example i don't know if you if it's a, it's a cognac or something then you sort of partner up with a special kind of chocolate brand or so you know some others i don't know if it's a whiskey then it, you you sort of okay i don't know if you can advertise cigars but you know isn't has there been like some kind of branding partnership something which goes together for the experience
1: it's something it's done yeah traditionally it's done a lot like for example you'll see for example people like who was it uh bullets by partnering up with guinness and you know then for example in uh cocktail week a while back um they were basically kind of serving uh bullet with you know having like a a beer and a chaser but it was always like guinness with a shot of bullets so there's loads of brands that will do that that type of partnerships or partner with um chefs or things like that or kind of artists to create bid like limited editions or to create like a type of like um food pairings or you know very kind of unique experiences that kind of it's finding like-minded brands or brands that stand or like bid like actual people and brands sometimes that kind of stand for a similar kind of side of things or attracted a, a similar type of um consumer target audience, and kind of bring something that 's quite tailored and unique to them
0: it's mm. yeah,
1: it 's done very wide widely.
0: Okay. And, and how do you see it sort of developing then? Uh, your Because you know, I mean, I also work freelance, so I, I I appreciate some of the benefits that you perhaps also do. And at the same time, uh, you know, all of the jobs that we undertake do have this uh, sort of time limited element to them. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you see things sort of developing um, as in... Would you remain a freelancer? Will you jump across uh, and, you know, take on a permanent thing maybe in the future or with the same company that you're with now? How how do you see things developing?
1: Well, I mean, my choice of going freelance at the time was always a temporary thing. Like the reason why I did it was um, I'd been working in this more kind of experience kind of side of things for quite some time and I wanted to go back into more kind of branding Um, side of things but um, and also from a career point of view I've I've I had spent the best part of 12 years in just two companies so very long stints Mm. I just wanted I wanted a a bit of a challenge in a way and kind of I felt like I had been like very what's the word Um, again complacent and almost kind of you know just let things happen and been floating a bit as opposed to actually challenging myself um so a obviously the freelance environment is challenging as it is because you know you need to be doing your own new business constantly uh whats you know you're working now for three months, so you need to kind of figure out what's next pretty quickly um but also I was in, intrigued in being able to work with lots of different agencies and both in terms of big big agencies, small agencies, agencies that focus on different industries, or some that are more like your standard kind of brands some that focus more on luxury and having a bit more that breadth of understanding and knowledge of how uh different businesses work and define also what I like and I don't like moving forward so I think I've been really lucky and um been able to do that um over the last four years but um the downfalls if you like of for like freelance for me are a you can't really progress from a career seniority point of view especially in my role which is basically client management you you're never going to give the highest responsibility of a client to someone who's not part of your permanent staff.
2: Mm.
1: so there is a ceiling right there uh, where for, and I've been doing my role now at you know at, at my level for the last maybe six seven years and you know you just can't go up as a as a freelancer um, and also you know i do I like the the longevity of things I like kind of seeing the results of what I do not you know not just kind of starting the project and da 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 and then leaving halfway through or leaving just as it finishes it's you know I like the idea of being able to develop that relationship with a client and bring in more business or kind of further that relationship being able to kind of build up my team and you know be part of their development there's that sense of you're there for X amount of time and then you move into something else, which is fun for a bit, but you know, it's getting a little bit tiresome
2: Mm. um,
1: in a way. And also job insecurity, like, you know, um, like most freelancers with COVID, for example, that, you know, um, I was one of the freelancers that got hit quite badly with that in terms of, you know, where I was working at the time, um, they got rid of all freelancers end of April for obvious reasons. But until I only then started working in October, so I was out of work for five months, which is a long time.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and absolutely.
1: It's something I don't want to be doing again. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, it's a real leveler, isn't it? This this virus, isn't it? When you're sort of riding high, it's bam, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 crazy. Um, yeah all right um yeah i had another question to ask you about that yeah okay um okay i know you a little bit so obviously you know i live in germany and you know armen introduced us and we Mm -hmm. don't you know have the opportunity to to sort of you know go for a beer all the time but the, the little that i have seen of you you've always been a very sort of you know okay fun loving of course but reflective um a very mature person in the way that you communicate with others um, and obviously very much respected by your friends I can, that's also particularly clear um, So a lot of things which sort of for me define um, leadership um, And from what you were discussing there, uh, you know, there are levels where you want to reach as in, So would you say your ambition there thereafter would be to attain these sort of senior levels of management?
1: Yeah, absolutely and, you know, I think it's something that in I've it, it's not something that comes naturally to me in terms of um, I've always said I'm a, I'm a great second hand uh, or right. Sorry, I'm a right. Uh, I'm a great right hand person rather than being the kind of the lead in a way. So I wouldn't, you know, I've, I wouldn't necessarily see myself starting a business and, you know, running that. But I would definitely be like, you know, the person you want to have on your on your side to make sure that things happen and, and lead a, a, a team kind mm. of things um yeah I think I, I think I've gone to the point where I, I want that challenge and I enjoy that challenge and I enjoy kind of having people around me and working with people and helping guide um you know people younger generations if you like who are kind of coming up and be able to kind of provide that guidance and you know you know i think i see i feel an immense pride in kind of seeing people that i work with succeed and kind of you know shine through what they do so it's again it's part of the reason on, i was saying earlier in terms of going permanent it's kind of gives you that allows you to have that perspective and kind of it's more the kind of building something in a way
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know being part of that journey so things and being able to take everything that I have learned uh, over the last 15-20 years and help shape something is something that you know I'm actually genuinely interested in and that's what you know from a career point of view that's where where I'm headed really
0: Mm, okay all right. Well, yeah. I'm. My fingers are crossed. Um. I'm. You, it sounds to me like you're really enjoying the project that you're on at the moment. Obviously, long may that continue. Um. And then, yeah. Thereafter, I I would uh, love to hear that your next step is exactly in the direction, um, that you have just outlined. So, um. Yeah. Good luck with that. Thank you. Um. Yeah. I, I did also want to talk about um another topic, but it's so it would require a lot more uh, analysis so but it's perhaps good to save something for another opportunity um, many things to save for another opportunity but um one little question based upon you know referring back to the you know the um the the levels of objectivity that we were referring to and so on um yeah you know, but my question is in the next few years is barcelona or Manchester united going to be the more successful team <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I'm not going to deny that I know nothing about English football um so on, on that one I'm most 100% going to go with my heart and always Barcelona 100%. <laughs> fair absolutely <up. laughs> fair enough
0: I, I I expected no different all right but I mean Messi he's 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 going to Manchester right as in in the summer he's He's city bound,
1: isn't he? <laughs> he might, do, you never know. Hey, you might you might end up in a, with good old uh, Guardiola and you know, rekindle that little that little tandem of joy. Mm-hmm. So you might have trouble coming your way if that happens.
0: Yeah, but by then, as in I mean, you know, a Messi who has, you know, much older legs, um, okay, he's not gonna run past too many of the United defenders, but We'll see. He's still a very good player.
1: Um, I was gonna say I would like I would like you guys to you know to see you guys stop him.
0: <laughs> right. uh, yeah, uh, do you know there were two finals between Manchester United and Barcelona okay. in three years, and the challenge that Sir Alex had was to try to achieve just that, and he just wasn't quite able. So if he couldn't do it, um, I'm not sure there is a manager who can. But anyway, yeah, Messi's got older now, so
1: yeah, it'll be interesting to see Barcelona without Messi. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's, you know, on that, that's going to be quite a, because, I mean, so many people keep saying uh, Barcelona without Messi is nothing, which I always kind of took huge offence to, mm-hmm. uh, especially when, you know, Iniesta, Xavi, et cetera, were, were in. But, you know, right now, it would be interesting to see, like, some of our more kind of junior players, like Ansefati, for example, who is doing amazingly, and, you know, who see who takes on that mantle, and, you know, are they actually able to... Rebuild the team from the from the ground up, really. So interesting times to come on the on that front. That's
0: mm. okay. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wish you success, of course. Except for when you're playing Manchester United. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, that's that's obviously quite natural. All
2: right.
0: Yeah. Annie, brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been very entertaining, but that doesn't come as a surprise at all. Um, and yeah, I hope that you've enjoyed it too. Was it all right?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, in fairness, I always love uh, chatting to you. And, you know, obviously we don't get to do it often enough. So this was really nice.
0: Cool. Brilliant. All right. So then uh, there shouldn't be an issue having you back for another chat uh, at some point in the future.
1: Whenever you want. Just
0: fantastic.
1: Hit me up.
0: Brilliant. All right. Then I should allow you to enjoy the rest of your uh, very, very social weekend. Um, (laughs) Good luck with everything. And uh, yeah, speak to you soon.
2: You too. Take care.
0: Take care. Bye Bye bye.